I've been reading your user's manual a bit. I seem to be sensing a theme. No. 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 Why are all your rules about what we can't do? Don't go there. Don't watch this. Don't eat that. Okay. Don't steal. Don't kill. No kidding. I really needed you for that one. Did you ever think about maybe not boxing us in so much? Do you think more people would listen to what you have to say if you actually said something other than don't do that? Maybe if you weren't so uptight about your rules, you wouldn't find yourself on the hot seat. I still don't like that guy. <laughs> so Time Magazine reports this in March of 2007. Polls show that nearly two-thirds of Americans believe that the Bible holds the answers to all or most of life's basic questions. But pollster George Gallup has dubbed us a nation of biblical illiterates. Only half of the U.S. adults know the title of even one gospel. Most can't name the Bible's first book. Do you know? Genesis, thank you. The trend extends even to evangelicals. Only 44% of whose teens could identify a particular quote as coming from the Sermon on the Mount. Simply put, the Bible is the most influential book ever written. Not only is the Bible the best-selling book of all time, it is the best-selling book of the year every year. So what's the draw? I think it has to do with this. I want to show you a film trailer of a yet-to-be-released film. I'm not endorsing the film. In fact, I think it's rated R, so you'd have to be very careful what you do with this. But the Bible has everything to do with the life portrayed. My name is Clarice Precious Jones. I want to be on the cover of a magazine. I wish I had a light-skinned boyfriend with real nice hair. But first, I want to be in one of them BET videos. You're a dummy. Don't nobody want you. Don't nobody need you. School ain't gonna help none. Take your ass down to the welfare. Oh, 16, you're still in junior high school, and you're pregnant with your second child. What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think about home? But you're gonna have to talk to somebody if you want your check, sweetie. People tell me my life Precious, I'm hungry. You plan on putting some food in that frying pan? My favorite color is purple. I sing well. And I'm here because I love to teach. I'm Joanne. My favorite color is fluorescent beige, and I'm here to get my GED. Paris, something you do well? Nothing. Everybody's good at something. Precious, you will stand up there and look down at me like I'm 
like you're a woman, you don't know what real women do. Real women sacrifice. Now it's not about that, you fat bitch. Talk about the abuse in your household. You know what I'm talking about. You sit there and judge me and you write them notes on your pad about who you think I am. Nobody loves me. People do love you, precious. Please don't love me. Love ain't done nothing for me. Beat me. Make me feel worthless. Your baby loves you. Nobody loves me. <laughs> Thank you. We're done here. <laughs> I've had my fill. This is great. <laughs> I love it. That is so good. Pam, you didn't even say that. Goodness. Doesn't it always end up there, though? Doesn't it end up the whole thing of who loves me? I watched this week as this really strong, big Samoan who had been devastated by a tsunami. They're, they're interviewing him, and, and tears are just flooding down his, his face. And this strong man says, I got no house left. I got no car. I got no money. But we will be okay. His family. I've seen the flip side. I've seen people interviewed before who through an incredible crisis lost their entire family but they still have their wealth and they still have their job and they still have their money and, and their words are these, I have nothing left. It ends there. Nobody loves me. Who loves me? And, and because it started there. It's what we've been looking at for these last weeks. That our creator said, I created you to love you. And for that to be full circle, you have to love me. But, but love cannot make you love. Otherwise, you're robotic. So instead, you have a choice. Love gives a choice and you can respond to love me. That's what this whole thing is about. God said, I love you. Do you love me? And the way that we love God is to, is to trust the fact that he knows what is good. Because, I mean, he started the whole thing. He said, this is good, this is good. He knows what's good for us. And do we trust him? And that trust is called obedience. He says, go do this, but don't go do that. But we've got built within us this stubbornness that says God's holding out on us, and so I'm going to choose what I want. And God says, choose this, don't choose that, but I want to choose that because I think God's holding out, and I think that's good for me, and so we choose it. But the problem is a choice without God is a choice without love because He is the source of love. 
And when I choose something that is without God's love, I begin to choose according to what I think is good, and my choices become less and less lovely and loving until I begin to really hurt the people that I thought I should be loving. So how do you get out of that ghetto of pain? You watch this film clip and you say... I understand that. I understand what precious is feeling. How do you get out of that? I told you as we began this series that we had, we had some, some ground rules to deal with putting God in the hot seat. And, and some of those rules included that you could disagree with me. But if you do, make sure that, that you back it up with research and study and not just feeling or opinion. I also said that, that you had the right to have questions that don't get answered. In fact, even today may bring up more questions than we answer. And then I told you that our base authority would be the Holy Scriptures. And some of you say, but man, how can you do that? And so I, I come to you today to tell you why I believe the Bible is the authority. And it's simply this. The Bible gives us the ability to be free. You say, no, no, wait, 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 wait. That is the most restrictive book I've ever read. You say, man, is that real? Yeah, 1837, when this book was printed. It's the one I carry all the time. List after list. No, no, no. Let me tell you what the Bible is not. It is not this grand list of rules. It is not. You say, but there's rules in there. Yes, but let me, under, let me tell you something. There are lists of rules in here. But those rules are not the passion of this book. Those rules help you get to the passion of the book, but those rules are not the passion of the book. And when we don't understand that, we begin to think it is just a list of rules to cramp our style. And if we believe it's just a list of rules, then we start believing that God wants us to keep these rules. And if we're godly, we keep rules. And in addition to that, we start adding our own rules. We say, well, God said this, but I think it includes that. And so what we start doing is we start using these rules to crush people. Pastor Jason, ever broken one of the Ten Commandments? Many? Evil! And we crush. Pastor Don? Which of the ten? No, no, no. <laughs> Have you ever broken one of the Ten Commandments? Evil. And we crush. And so we start pushing down on those people that are not as godly as we are because we do a really good job of keeping those rules and the ones we have chosen to go with it. And we crush until a person finally says, whatever God wants, whatever God wants. And we say, okay, come find God's freedom. And so we bring them to God's freedom and say, welcome to the family of God. How do you like your freedom? And we let those rules begin to box them in. Especially the ones that we make up as we go. I've been places that if you were going to worship in a church, you had to have the right Christian greeting or you weren't a Christian. In other words, you had to know the secret handshake or you don't get in. I've been in places where if you drank coffee, you weren't a child of God. 
I know. They serve Starbucks in hell, I'm telling you. There you are. You say, oh, I don't do rules. Let me tell you some other rules. That if you're going to worship, you have to have a cross up on the wall. Because some of you have complained to me about that. And I've told you why we don't have one showing that. But we do during worship. And, and, and there's a whole reason behind that. And it's not because we don't love Jesus or believe on the cross. But, but we've given this rule. You, you can't worship without a cross. Well, then tell me what the New Testament church did in the synagogue. Early church didn't have crosses up, up on the wall. Any more than you put an electric chair up on the wall. In fact, Jesus said, I don't care so much about the cross being on the wall. I want you to pick up your cross and follow me. And sometimes I think we put them on the wall so when someone says, what do you believe, we point to that so we don't have to carry it ourselves. Remember, I told you, you could disagree. I've been places where if you have facial hair, guys, ladies, I'm not going to deal with that, guys... (laughs) You still love me? <laughs> if you have facial hair, you can't, you can't serve in the church. There's another rule. I've been in places, I was talking to somebody this week, and I said, what was it like when you first became a follower of Jesus? And they said, you had to wear a tie. I told Pam this morning that I was going to wear jeans with a sport coat, and she said, you can't. And I said, where'd you get that rule? She said, you want to come home? I'm not wearing jeans. My kids, when, we, when they got to adolescence, we started telling them the rules that we had when we were coming up in, in our adolescence, and we started putting our rules on them and our kids. Because when I was growing up, the big rules were you, you can't go to movies and, and you can't dance. And so we didn't get to do that because if Jesus came while you are in the movie theater, oh, you wouldn't get out of the building. you just hit your head. you And they said dancing would lead to promiscuity. In fact, it became such a focus that we had this joke that the reason our church didn't believe in premarital sex is because it would lead to dancing. (laughs) There was this rule that was all over us. And so our kids said, well, why do we have that rule? Um, Because? Well, why why are you giving us this rule? What's What's the deal? And we honestly had to start looking at our rules. And finally we'd have to say, ah, no reason for that rule. And they were able to do this better than I did. (laughs) And move on. So let me tell you what the Bible is. The Bible is not a bunch of rules. The Bible is a grand story of love inviting us to take part. So what is the Bible? The Bible consists of two parts. Do you know what they are? Old Testament and New Testament. The Old Testament, in an average printing, has about a 1,000 pages. The New Testament, in an average printing, has about 300 pages. The Old Testament took about a millennium, a 1,000 years, to be put together. The New Testament took about a little less than a century. 
The word testament actually means covenant. And the old story, the old covenant, is the fact that God said, you guys have made such rotten choices, I'm coming to rescue you, and here's how I'm going to rescue you. And, and I'm going to make an agreement with you that I will rescue you. And specifically through the nation of Israel, through the whole world would be blessed. Only God kept his part of the bargain, but humanity did not. And so we have this pain and God recurring, coming back, saying, come back to me, come back to me, come back to me. The New Testament is him renewing his covenant again with Israel and sending to us our rescuer who came from the nation of Israel from the throne of King David, a king who would rescue us, a servant who would rescue us. He was a Messiah, the anointed one for that purpose. And his name is Jesus. So if that's the story that we're invited to be a part of, then it is important to us that it be accurate. So the question is, okay, so all of that stuff in that Bible and that whole story, is it accurate? How do we know it's accurate? Do you have the original manuscripts, the original autographs? No. But this we do know. It was so important for us to be in that story that those who copied those documents did with precision and high inspection so that nothing was left off and nothing was added. You say, are you sure? Because this is important to us. The good news is that between 1947 and 1956 on the northwest shore of the Dead Sea in a place called the Qumran region, documents were found in 11 caves called the Dead Sea Scrolls. And among those scrolls were found copies of that Old Testament. And these documents were written in the last 200 years of B.C. And when they looked at that, they said, these are accurate. This must be right. The New Testament letters were written within two generations of Jesus. So just toward the end of the first century A.D., In fact, the Gospels were written because of eyewitness accounts. How accurate are those? Well, the writings of Greek authors such as Plato and Sophocles and Roman authors such as Tacitus and Pliny have just a few copies from the ancient world and those who are experts look at that and say, okay, they have credibility. From just a few documents, the New Testament has literally hundreds of early manuscripts pointing to their accuracy. And it is important that that be accurate for this reason. Paul writing to his friend Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, All scripture is inspired by God. That's holy writ. Scripture, inspired by God, and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. That word, the scripture is inspired, is literally a Greek word, two pieces, from God and to blow. And the word blow there is a... 
A strong blowing. It literally means God breathed. That the original thing that God wanted us to know, the holy writ that we are to live in, was God breathed. He did not use a dictaphone. He did not grab the hand of the writer and trace it for him. He did not put someone in a trance and they went into this trance and began to say, Behold, the Lord says... And off they go. But he took men, just like you in this room, guys, a fig farmer, a king, a physician, a fisherman, a shepherd. He took their emotions and their personality and their culture, and he God-breathed into them and out of them so that we would understand God's love and his intent. That's why Peter, a follower of Jesus, wrote these words in Second Peter, the first chapter, the 20th verse. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture, of Holy Writ, came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy will never have its origin in the will of man, but God, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. These guys just didn't sit down and blog and say, hey, this sounds pretty good. I, I think this is God's stuff. And so they said, God did this. Oh, no, no, no. When it came to the place of whether or not God said this, there was high inspection. In fact, in the second century, a guy named Marcion decided to, to fabricate his own holy scriptures. And the fathers of the church came together and they said, we must protect what we've been using all these years, knowing that it is true, knowing that it is right. And so they created what is called the canon of scripture. That word canon means the measuring stick and said, this is what we know is true. And they asked these questions about what you read in that Bible. Who wrote this? Do they have credibility? Are there people that around them would say, yes, it's true? When was it written? Was it close enough to the time that it would be accurate? Because some of you say, what about the Gospels that were found in the third century? That's the problem. They were found in the third century. That'd be like somebody 300 years after Abraham Lincoln was alive to declare that Abraham Lincoln was a communist. Well, who's there to debate them 300 years later? So it has to have its accuracy close to the time that it took place. Is it consistent with other inspired scriptures? Is there the continuity? And did the early church receive it and embrace it? And finally, would you die for it? See, that's the question. Will you die for that? The importance of that is this, that these are God-breathed stories. And what Paul said to Timothy is this. They first of all teach us what it's like when God is around and when God is not around. So that we'll want to be where God is around. It convicts us. The conviction simply means this, that it tells us when we're, we're in the moments of insanity. You know what insanity is? Insanity is doing the same thing all the time, expecting different results. He said, you keep doing this and it keeps giving you pain and I'm convicting you now, telling you that's got to change so that you have different results. It corrects us and that word simply means this, that when you are bent over by the pain of this world and the evil that's around you and the stupid choices that you make, these holy scriptures straighten you back up again so that you know what is right and you can move in a healthy direction. 
It tutors us. It doesn't put us in a box. The scriptures say, let me open up wide the pathway that God has for you. I'll show you what the story is about. And so we walk in the story. And he says, this is how you live life. This is what God has planned for you. The entire garden is yours. Let me show it to you so that you are fully equipped to accomplish what God has for you in life. You say, I really want to know my purpose. The holy scriptures take you on that road to find your purpose. See, the bottom line is this. When you get this story in you, no matter how messed up your life is, it will absolutely transform you. Ah! I'm sick of you! You disrespectful, ungrateful, selfish! I'm the son of a good man. I'm the child of an angel. I'm the brother of a wild one. And I'm looking for direction. So when this God breathes on you through these holy words, it is not just a description of a story. It's the fact that you are in the story. You are not just reading those words. Those words are reading you. And what happens when you begin to understand that those words are alive and they breathe you begin to understand that God's authority is released through God's story. So let me explain it this way, and I I love the example given by Bishop N.T. Wright, an Anglican priest, a bishop in England, probably our modern-day C.S. Lewis. He says, to understand this whole story thing, just just imagine that that suddenly we discovered a five-act play by Shakespeare. Only we found, we discovered four acts and the fifth act is missing. But, but there is this, this wealth of characterization and the plot is so intriguing that all agree that this must be staged. So what do you do? You don't have the fifth act. 
Well, you take the important parts of the play and you give them over to those who have been highly trained, very sincere, experienced in Shakespearean acting. They soak themselves in the first four acts. They understand the characterization because you can't add more characters. You see who they are and you know what they are like and you can't change who they are because you see that through the first four acts. You look at the, the plot and the subplots and you see where that flows. It's not a matter of going back to the previous four and just reenacting. That would do no good because it doesn't help the finalization of the play. And so... They have studied hard. They have taken upon themselves the characters. They understand now how they must portray that. They cannot change the characters. They cannot change the plot. And they have a good idea of what the ending is going to be. So they must now bring it to a conclusion. They know how all the loose ends must be tied together. And from there... They speak and act with consistency of the play and innovation for what is yet to come. This morning I want you to see the Bible in five five acts. And I'm going to need ten of you to assist me. And nobody knows who I'm going to pick, so I'm going to do it anyhow. So Pastor Don and and Barb and Jenny. Oh, Mike Sullivan, get up here, man. Going to use you too. What does that give me? One, two, three, four. Two, four. All right. Everybody's afraid now. Scott, come on up and help me. Bob, come up and help me. What do I got here? Pastor, Jason's going to assist me. One, two, three, four, five, six. I need four more. You guys, come help me, both of you. Seven, eight. And, um, oh, yeah. You, you want to help? Come on up. Get up here. You want to help too? Get up here. All right. All right. So I need you to, you guys to move this way a little bit. Move down that way. Do I have too many people? Two, four, six, eight, ten. Do we have everything? You guys move down that way. Move down that a little ways. Okay. We keep moving these guys. Get them separated. Okay, you all, Pastor Don, I need you right there. Let's move these these guys down. Keep going, keep going. Okay, five acts. You ready? Creation. God forms the world out of nothing because he loves us and he wants a place for us. Good job, God. Really good. And I heard you sing. It's good. But we have this fall. Eve, sorry, Barb. Take a bite of that apple. That's good. Go ahead. It's it, sucker. Okay. <laughs> Had happened that way. So now we have the world fallen, and now we've got to be rescued. So God creates a nation out of an old guy, a hundred years old. Get a hundred. There we are. And he and his wife give birth to a child and create a nation from which that nation, a rescuer, would come, and his name is Jesus fifth act and Jesus dies on the cross there you go now fourth act now we move to the fifth act move down this way a little bit you see when Jesus died on the cross he said now I've got to let my life 
flow into a group of people who will represent me and bring my kingdom on this earth. And so he creates the church. And as you listen to the church in the very beginning, you begin to get an understanding how it's all going to end because Jesus, hold that thought up, Jesus, returns. Now here's the issue. These people right here, this church of which you are, they need to know what happened in this story. They're not going to create new characters. they got to know what transpired from that point on. They're not going to go back and repeat these acts. They've got something new to do here. And so they've got to listen. They've got to understand. They've got to, to understand that this story, these four acts, has authority over these people. You see, in Shakespeare, those four acts had authority over the fifth act. In the church... This story has authority. So they got to go back and figure out what the characters are saying and what they're doing and how I'm supposed to live because it will then give them direction for their innovation, for their improvisation because they get to finish the act. That's what we're doing on earth right now. We're finishing the act. But they know how to live because they see the authority of the previous acts. So if I come to you, church, and say, all right, you studied the story... If you have an enemy, what do you do with that enemy? According to the story. What do you do? You love your enemy. Who? So improvise how to do that. You live in a world that is sexually active. How should you live your life when it comes to sexuality? You're Jesus. You can't answer. <laughs> Abstain. Live within the confines of marriage. Not because we're prude, but because that's what the story tells us. If you have possessions, what are you supposed to do with those possessions? Share them. You guys can smile. You're the church. (laughs) Whatever we face, we have the story that tells us what we should do because we've watched it all these years. And it tells us that we can improvise. So here we are. So that the moment comes that we understand the story that God said that, hey, I made this for you and we messed up. And so now he comes and rescues us and he gives us Jesus who rises from the grave. There you go. Okay, you're risen. You're fine. Okay. And so now knowing that story, you as the church say to his spirit, What do I do? You take that scripture and you say, here's the story. And Jesus says, you feel like you're in a pit? Look what happened to Joseph. Follow suit. I don't know how to worship you. Hey, look what David did. Follow suit. Somebody offends you? Look what Jesus did. Follow suit. For what this tells us is that this is how the future becomes present. For the kingdom of God is right here between the first and the second comings of Jesus. And that Bible is our authority. Thanks, guys. Have a seat. So go back to Precious. The Scripture is not to move us out of the ghetto so that we can end up in a box. But it tells us that we must take that story into the places where there is a ghetto of pain. 
Paul the Apostle said it well in Romans 15. He said, even if it was written in Scripture long ago, you can be sure it's written for us. God wants the combination of a steady, constant calling and warm personal counsel in Scripture to come to characterize us, keeping us alert for what he will do next. So let me tell you what happens as you take this Scripture and you begin to read it. When you read it and you live it out, you bring order into this world. It's just not some little book that you have the option to read or if you can get the cliff notes, that would be better. When you speak those words, it organizes the world around you. When you live it out, it organizes the world around you. Watch, Jesus has a confrontation with Satan and Satan wants to disorganize the world, to bring chaos. And he says to Jesus, hey, make bread out of these stones. And Jesus says, it is written. And we get order. Hey, put yourself on the temple and throw yourself off because the scripture says that the angels will keep you from stumbling and they'll catch you. And, and, and Jesus said, no, 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 no. It is written. Hey, if you worship me, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. It is written. Order, order, order. So I want to tell you this, that when you speak those words that God breathed and you live those words out, it gives notice to the spiritual realm around you that you are demanding order by the very presence of the Holy Scriptures. You think that this community is all messed up? Then start to live those words and when you go by places, re repeat the holy words that counteract what you don't want to see. You don't want to see Erie being the place that has the highest poverty in the state? Then find the scriptures that deal with poverty and repeat them out loud because it will bring organization, it will bring order to the city because this is the God-breathed word. That's why you got to know it. Some of you are suffering with issues, and if you only knew what God said about it, you could start living it and speaking it, and it would help bring order into your life. Some of you get so discouraged, and, and you feel like you're not going to make it, and, and God doesn't love you anymore. And when you begin to repeat those words, it reminds you that He is a covenant God, and you are in that covenant. It's amazing that as others see you live out that story in your life, they also want to be in that story. Again, the Bible is not just something that, that you bring on Sunday morning or grab out of the pew and I, when I ask you to lower, you look on the screen. It is part of God's plan. Not just a description of it, and it's more than a description of who you're going to be. That word is the mechanic who fix, fixes you when you're broken. It's the attendant that fills you up as you get empty. It is the GPS that gives you direction when you think you're lost. And so we get to repeat these words because they're God-breathed. And here's what I want to tell you. You study those, those words and, and you let them breathe in you. You don't get restricted to say, well, yeah, okay, you repeat those words on Sunday morning when you're the preacher. Oh, please. There are thousands of ways to express the Holy Scripture. Some people had trouble when I first came to this church because I didn't preach the way that they had normally been used to preaching and you have to preach that way, which is I stand before you and I say, good morning, please turn in your Bibles too. Point one, point two, point three. They said, you can't do it that way. Oh, I can. I am not in that box. 
And neither are you. Just as much as what I'm saying to you here today and the effect it will have on you, so is the effect when you're sitting with your friend at Starbucks talking to them. Or you're walking your friend through the doors of the cancer center to be with them. Or when you show up on Halloween evening to help children find a safe place called Light the Night. Or when you gather with us when we put together Thanksgiving baskets and we service those who don't have any. Or when we as a church invite people in for a story of Jesus presented through a musical, fun and laughter and truth. You have that ability to speak. So my friend Steve and his wife Joyce kept clashing because Joyce was a follower of Jesus and Steve is an atheist. He's a captain in the Air Force. Smart guy. And she used to bug him and he finally said, would you just leave me alone? She said, I'll leave you alone if you do one thing. If you will take this Bible and read it all the way through and when you're done, I'll never ask you anything else about Jesus. So he did. And one evening he walked out into their family room and he said, I read it. I think I believe it. And he entered the story. He walked the story and he and Joyce continued to walk the story and people see it in their lives and go, tell me about that story. Because here's what Jesus said. He said, when you live out that story with other people around you, you are like a city on a hill and you, sh- you, you shine brightly and people go, oh, oh, oh I want to be there. So who made the Bible boss? It's not. God is. He's the authority. But he said, these are my words that will release my bossness in you and through you. Now listen, you may find glimpses of this God in other holy books. You may. But Jesus himself said, this is my Father's book. It is written. This is the one that releases my power. This is my story. These are his words, his power. So the author of Hebrews reiterates that by saying, God means what he says. What he says goes, his powerful word is sharp as a surgeon's scalpel, cutting through everything, whether doubt or defense, laying us open to listen and obey. Nothing and no one is impervious to God's word. We can't get away from it, no matter what. The Bible contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its stories are true and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, and practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Here, 
paradise is restored, heaven opened, and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good, the design, and the glory of God, its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, health to the soul, and a river of pleasure. It involves the highest responsibility, will reward the greatest labor, and will condemn all who trifle with its sacred contents. Pray it in, read it through, live it out, and pass it on. So will you stand? If this morning you have questions about how to get into that story, the story of God's love for you and your rescue, we want to answer those questions. If you'll stop by our information desk, we have a gift that will help you understanding more about this rescue that Jesus has brought us. So stop by and just ask for the gift that I told you to get following this gathering. Secondly, if you want to know more about this book, you want to know about how it breathes into your life, I want you to stop by the small group table in the back. They have plenty of gatherings of, of people to get together to talk about that story. And we have classes that will help lead you in understanding it better. Because it's God-breathed and he invites you into his story. So now let me pray a blessing on you. May you discover today, by the very words spoken in this gathering, how great his love is for you. May you, in your moment of challenge, remember the words that have been spoken even centuries past that are still alive for you at this time. And may you, in your improvisation of, final, of this final act, discover that what has happened before feeds into your life and gives you direction and strength and success. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.